Turn in your Bibles this morning to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 7. We're going to continue our exposition of the book of Titus, and we're looking at biblical elder qualifications. In fact, you can put that down as your title this morning, Biblical Elder Qualifications Part 2. John started us off last week with Part 1, and as he looked at verse 6, we're going to continue looking at verse 7 this week. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer, he must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both to exhort and sound doctrine and able to refute those who contradict. Father, help me this morning. Help me be the servant, the steward that I might be, that I might lift your name mightily, Lord, that you may be glorified in all that we do. May your word penetrate the hearts of the listeners this morning. May it penetrate my heart, Father, that we may become a pure, holy, blameless bride ready for that day of adornment, Lord, as we meet you in glory. Thank you for your word. And it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul, he instructs Titus to appoint elders as we've looked at. And, 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 but it just can't be any man can do this. It must be a qualified man. It is a man called by God. They must be biblically qualified men. God's plan for his bride is that the right kind of leadership is within place. So that's what we see here as Paul instructs Titus and Timothy in, in, other, uh, in other letters to put what is in order, what, what is out of order, put it in order, that being the right kind of men. John introduced us last week to this as, as Paul reminds Titus to appoint only morally and spiritually qualified men to be elders. And so we see here in Titus, as well as the book of Timothy, that we have a public list of requirements that are to help guide the local church in how they are to choose their elders, how they're to choose the men who are to lead them. And, and, and these elders, they are to be above reproach. They are to be blameless. They are not to be accused of anything. They are, as Alexander Strock writes in his, in his, uh, in his book, Biblical Eldership, they are to be irreproachable of moral character and capable in the use of Scripture. Elders are to be, as Strock says, living examples for people to follow. They are to be true exemplars to the sheep. It must be reminded of us that these qualifications for the elders are a must, as Phil already said, if a man aspires to be to that office. Therefore, a man who does not meet these qualifications, even one, is unqualified. If he is an elder and he does not meet those throughout his eldership, then he is disqualified. We also note, though, we need to understand this. And I think this is going to be a theme, is that this is not just qualifications for an elder. These are so that the elder may be the exemplar to the sheep. 
For God calls His people to be blameless, to be an innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in Philippians chapter 1 verse 15 or 2.15. Therefore, the people were not off hook. We're not off the hook. We can't just sit over here and say, well, that's just the other qualifications that I'm going to do. I just don't meet those qualifications. That's not what, that's not the intentions behind these verses. The elders to be the exemplar, the example, while the people should strive to obtain these characteristics as well. John MacArthur, he says this, he says, whatever the leaders are, the, the, the people will become. As Hosea said, like people, like priests. Jesus said that everyone after me, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Biblical history demonstrates that people will seldom rise above the spiritual level of their leadership. Therefore, the leadership, the elders, must rise to the highest level of spiritual leadership and, and the moral quality so that the people may rise with them. So the, the elders are to be the examples of their flock. They should exemplify these qualifications that we see within Titus and Timothy and elsewhere. The elders should be a man whose life is worthy of imitating, a man who can echo the words of Paul, be imitators of me as just as I am of Christ. Additionally, these biblical qualifications are, are set in order to protect the church from incompetent or morally unfit leaders. Often we see within churches today unqualified men leading their churches who are utterly inept at, I would say, even leading a Sunday school class. But yet these are the men who have been propagated and propped up to lead the full flock of God within that local church. They do it either maybe to satisfy an ego or we see men who are leading churches who are self-deceived by their own ability and character and, and, and their people within the church continue to allow them to be elders or to leadership in the church for as they don't want to, they don't want to commit or, or sin against the 11th commandment. And that is, if you don't know, is you must be nice. So because men today are soft, they're afraid cowardly, mealy-mouthed, we allow the pastor or that leader in, to continue on in his daily duty, even though it is clear that he misses the mark within biblical eldership and qualifications. These qualifications, they're given so that the congregation may, they, they can be empowered so that they may choose the right men to lead them and remove or hold back the unfit men from their leadership. It is in the best interest that the congregation uphold Scripture and say, does this man meet these qualifications? It is in their best interest to do that. So the church needs men who are just and devout, sensible and self-controlled, forbearing, not contentious, not doing this for their own gain, faithful to sound doctrine, able to teach. And the church is in desperate need of men who are called by the Holy Spirit and that meet the qualifications set forth in Scripture. And I believe that these qualifications, they can be broken down into probably three broad categories. Um, th this with the help of Alexander Strzok and a couple of other uh, theologians. I, I, I believe the, the first category that we can see is, is the moral and spiritual category. Th that they, that their qualifications must be morally and spiritually in character. We see that, right? That, that's kind of the majority of the, the qualifications. This must be a morally fit man. This must be a spiritually sound man. 
But then also, second would be, is the ability of the elder. Does the ability of the elder, does the, the elder have the ability to manage his household like John talked about last week? Does he have the ability to teach? For that is the qualification of the elder. That is the one different qualification from a deacon, is that the elder must be able to teach, apt to teach. And the third is the spirit-given motivation of the elder. That, that, that being the, the spiritual desire of that elder to, to, to lead. Is it something that he loves to do that he cannot shake? It is something that the, the, the Spirit has called him to do. And it says, I can't do, I, I can do anything, I can't do anything else. If I meet these qualifications and I'm able to do these things, I just cannot shake it. I must be doing this. But, but that comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is fine work that he desires to do. It is a good thing to be an elder, to aspire to do that. Not everyone should do it, but it is a good thing. First Peter chapter 5, verse 2, he, 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 Peter says, to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not something that, not something that I'm made to be doing, it's something that I want to be, but voluntarily, he says, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. The elder shepherds because it's something that, again, that he cannot shake. It's something that he longs to do, not under compulsion, but because it is a spirit-generated desire. It's the Holy Spirit who has called them to shepherd the flock of God. As we were talking about this earlier, just a, a verse that we're going to continue to come back to, Acts 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So with those thoughts in mind, I, I want to look at our text today and break it down, and I want to see the continuing qualifications of what an elder must be and, and who are called to be God, God's, to lead God's flock and His people. And mainly what we're going to look at is, is that first category, that spiritually and moral character of the elder. So what we see is there's going to be seven headings today. Seven, and there, yeah, I know it sounds a lot, but they'll go pretty quickly. I don't have a three-point sermon. It is a seven-point sermon. It is like a Puritan sermon this morning, but we'll be quick about it. And the first point I want you to see is, is that the elder must be an above-reproach overseer. The elder must be an above-reproach overseer. Look here in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, 4, he says the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Paul, let me stop there. Paul says for, that word for is, a, is here to give a term of explanation. It is to explain something. That is, when you do that, I always circle for because he's explaining what he's already just said. And so what I want you to understand is Paul is going to give some girth to what he made mention already of the above reproach statement. He's going to, he's going to drill down even more into this above reproach. He, he mentioned it, but then now let's, let's go deeper as to what above reproach means. He continues to expand upon the character of an elder and the qualities and the characterizations that the elder must have. And I think that John did a fantastic job last week of, of, of explaining these first three characteristics of an elder, that he must be above reproach, that he must be a one-woman man or the husband of one wife, and that he must have faithful children or believing children, however you want to look at that, but that are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. 
And so if you, if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, go back and listen to that and, and hear what John had to say. But what John talked about, and I think he's completely right, is, is that this above reproach, uh, wording, this here is, this is an umbrella over all these other qualifications. So everything that we see up under here must be filtered through the above reproach category. This blameless above reproach, uh, that, that Paul calls, or that the Holy Spirit through Paul calls the elder to be. We're going to look today at at the, the more of the elder qualifications that one will see, but they're put in the negative. What I'm going to do is we're going to look at the ones that are negative, and then next week Phil's going to look at the positive ones. So we're going to look at the negative qualifications, these things that that are, the, like John said, is, is this is what above reproach is not to be. If we want to know what above reproach is not, we can look right here and quickly see this is what this is, it's not to be. So with that, we can also say is the opposite of that must be what it should be. And so that's, and, and so we're going to work through that today and Phil's going to be able to go through next week the positive sides of things. Paul, he uses the term episkopos, and we did that. I, I was able to preach that sermon about the difference between an elder and an overseer, as well as a pastor. This term episkopos, it should ring a bell. It, it means overseer. It translates as an overseer. Uh, we, we said that that term is synonymous with an elder, pastor, shepherd. So I don't believe he is introducing another office within this text. He is just continuing, he, he is continuing his thought process of what an elder might be. But now what he's doing is he's explaining the function of the elder. You could really say this is a functional title of what an elder is to be, that he is an overseer of God's flock. And it seems that, that Paul has introduced this term in connection with the terminology that he's going to employ in just a few words that the overseer is to be God's steward. That's what the overseer is to be, is to be God's steward. So he ties these two thoughts together. They're connective, I believe. That meaning that the elder should understand that he functioned not as a leader of his own flock, but that he is an overseer of God's flock. He is an overseer of what God has instituted for him. It is, he is, he is, it is someone who is in, um, uh, uh, in this overseer, this God steward is, is someone, is someone who is over something of someone else's ownership, you could say. And really, that's what we should expect to understand when Paul employs this term overseer. For an overseer is one who looks out after something. You know, it's somebody who guards something. It's watching out for something. As Phil talked about, is I'm looking over something. I'm surveying it. I'm, I'm checking it out. I'm making sure that it is okay as he checks out that field to make sure that buck doesn't come running into it, right, so he can shoot him. Uh, so, so really what Paul is wanting to do is, is make this point stick and that it's, I think it's vitally important for the church leader here is that God's called man is to be above reproach because the church is the household of God and the elder is just a steward of that household. It's key that he's overseeing something that he does not own. He's overseeing something that he has been stewarded with. Really, for clarity's sake, we might could translate it like this. Let me, maybe this can help. An elder should be blameless in his household, i.e. his children. He can manage his household, his marriage. For as an overseer, he must be blameless to serve in God's household. There we see the idea that if he's going to be the overseer of God's household, he is to be blameless and above reproach. 
It is reminiscent of what Paul does in his letter to Timothy, where he stops his train of thought as he's going through these qualifications and he explains to Timothy why this is very important that Timothy carry out Paul's instructions. This is what Paul tells Timothy. He says, because... Here's what you must understand is because the church is the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of truth. That's what Paul tells him. His, he, he, he reminds Timothy, this is not your church, but this is God's church. It is his household and reminding him that this institution is which upholds the word of God. It is what upholds the truth of God. Not your truth, Timothy, but God's truth. It is the place where Timothy, a place where Timothy, uh, where God's truth must be proclaimed and it must be protected. Paul, he says that the elder, or the overseer must be above reproach, meaning there's not an option. It's absolutely necessary that the, the elder or the overseer must be above reproach. Therefore, it's not an option nor suggestion that the, uh, the elder overseer must be above reproach. I'm going to say elder and overseer a lot as, as so they mean the same thing. But uh, that's not a suggestion. It, it's not something that I, we're, we're going to, you know, I, you should be this or uh, it's, uh, you ought to be this. But no, you must be these qualifications. You must have these qualifications. He uses the same term in his epistle to Timothy where he uses it twice to say that an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife. And in verse 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. In 2 Timothy, Paul emphasized that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. Same terminology. He also uses this term in Titus to refer to those in whom Titus would be up against. Titus chapter 1, verse 10 through 11, it says, Rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. He doesn't say they ought to be silenced or they should be silenced. He says they must be silenced. It's not an option. They have to. So therefore, we know here is, is that Paul says here, this must be above reproach. Again, not a suggestion. The same term is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, where it is said that Christ must reign until all his enemies are under his feet. In 1 Corinthians 15, 53, we see the same term being used to explain that at the death, the perishable and mortal must be replaced by the imperishable and the immortal. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, all people must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's going to happen. So Paul is reminding Titus that this is a must for those that will be a steward of God's people, that he's above reproach. There's no compromise on this issue. There's no capitulation here. And you can clearly see what happens to the church when these men in leadership are not what they must be. As one author put it, they drag the church down into disrepute. When a man is not qualified... It is a possibility they drag the church, God's bride, Christ's bride, down into disrepute. When men are not above reproach and they fail to qualify for the position of elder, yet they continue in that position, the purity of the household of God is at stake. The gospel is at stake. The church as a pillar and buttress of truth is at stake. And we cannot take that chance. 
Christ's bride is too precious to be in the hands of men. It's too precious to, to, to be in the hands of men who are not biblically qualified and to leading the sheep. It's too high of a stake. John, he, he took us through this above reproach wording. And, and I'm not going to belabor that point, but I, just a reminder that, that, that basically the elder must be blameless. He can't be accused of ongoing sin in his life. He can't be found guilty, indicted on claims against his character. He is to be a man who is a model of spiritual consistency, free from any blight that stains his reputation or calls his character into question. If the pastor is not a trustworthy example of godliness, then nothing else matters. Therefore, the man of God must be above reproach. And he says here, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. That's my second point is, is that the man not only must be the above reproach overseer, but he must be God's steward. God's steward. Theos oikonomos. Theos oikonomos. You hear that word theos, that is God. Paul employs that. He doesn't just say any steward, but he says it is God's steward. Theos. It is God's oikonomos. There's no one else's oikonomos. There's no one else's steward, but it is God's steward. Theos. He isn't a rebel without a cause. He, he doesn't go, uh, doesn't get to yield his own authority. He, he doesn't get to manage God's household, Christ's bride, as he well pleases, for he is God's steward. This term steward, oikonomos, is a compound word, oiko meaning house and nomos meaning to law or rule or manage. So literally it means to someone who manages a household. That's what that term came to mean. It is a superintendent of a household or an estate. And the manager or the steward was charged by the master of the house to carry out certain duties that might range from oversight of the laborers, to management of money or business interest. It was a high calling to be a steward of somebody's household. There was a lot of trust there, a lot of trustworthiness, a lot of, uh, of, of responsibilities. The servants, they, they, these servants, they provided food for, or the stewards, they provided food for the servants, managing his manager's uh, resources very well from the, uh, for the well-being of others. He acted as an agent for his master with full authority to transact business in the master's name. That's what that term came to mean. And when we think about this definition, it really differs, again, back to that CEO administrator mindset. That's not the, the term that we see here. That would have been a different term employed. This term here is someone who is manages someone else's, not someone who takes his own ideas and formulates them and manages this, this place, this, this thing as a business or how he thinks it ought to run so that, that, that man, that, that you can look at it and say, that is a well-oiled machine. Man, that thing is booming over there. That thing is looking really good. Well, how'd you do it? Well, pragmatism. I did it on my own whim. I didn't do it following the Bible. I did it how I wanted to do it. Goes against the regulative principle that we talk about is, is that our worship is guided by the Bible. Let me give you a little illustration here. I, uh, Scott Plath, you got to meet him a couple weeks ago. He's a, he's a, he's a pastor, but he's also a taxidermist. And so he came in a couple of weeks ago and he does, he does a lot of taxidermy for a lot of my friends. And what he does is he ships them in the mail, the, ta the, the, the mounts and he, and they, and they'll, they'll come to the, they, he shipped a couple of mounts to my house two weeks in advance. And they did not make it. 
the mail failed to, to make it there. So he, as he was here that week, he was unable to be able to box them up and to take those mounts out and to make sure that they look good before he handed them over to the customer. So what happened was, was Blake was stewarded with that responsibility, which was high stake responsibility because these things are very delicate. And so what happened was he called me and says, hey, Blake, I'm going to have to do this. But when when those boxes arrive, here here are the steps that I need you to take. Step one, step two, step three. And I, and I love taxidermy, so I know how gentle these things must need to be handled, especially waterfowl. It's not like a deer head. These things have wings and, and they're, they're very fragile. And so what I did was, is as they came in the mail, I did exactly as Scott told me to do. I didn't go one ounce uh, away from what he told me not to do. Why? Because what I was going to do was, was I was going to give that mount over to the person who asked for it to be mounted as, 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 a, as, a, as a steward of what God, uh, uh, of Scott had done. I'm giving it over to this guy, but it, that, that work represented what Scott had done, not what Blake had done. So it was very important that I got that right because I wanted to be able to give him something so that I make sure that Scott was, um, uh, make sure that his character and his, his integrity and that his craftsmanship was intact. I was stewarded with making sure this mounts got to the right person. I think we still have that same idea today with the, I think that's the idea, though much more higher stakes at, at cost is the bride of Christ, is the man of God, the overseer, the elder, he is called to steward the household of God as God has intended him to do. How does he intends to do? I don't just, I don't just go out and just arrange feathers as I want to because I think it looks good. Now the pastor, he's not an administrator of dead waterfowl, but he's called to be a spiritual administrator, a trustee of souls. He's called to administer God's word to thirsty souls. He's called to protect the sheep, the master's prized possessions. But what does this stewardship entail? We must ask. What does it entail? What does it call us to do? What is what is what are they must steward? Well, first Peter chapter five, verses one through four. The elder who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that we will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, entrusted to this person, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory, glory that does not fade away. They're entrusted with something. They're entrusted with this beautiful pearl, this pearl of great price, given over to the steward, the master, says, here, take these stewards and manage these people, manage this flock, be an example to them. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, again, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Do you see what Paul and Peter both are telling us is? Is that, that the overseer, the elder, shepherds whose church is entrusted with whose flock? Whose church is it? Whose flock is it? It is God's. What a high calling that is. Elders are entrusted with the leadership of the flock of God, those in whom he purchased with his blood. I don't know about you, but that, that's a massive and that's a weighty thing to do. Not something that is taken lightly and it's not something that's left up to just any man, but it must be a qualified man. We see Christ, he gives an illustration in Luke chapter 12, verse 41, of a faithful steward. He says this, Luke chapter 12, verse 41. 
He says, Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Note that that steward there, that's the same word that we have today. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be gone away a long time in coming and beings to beat the slave, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and he will sign a place with unbelievers. This is speaking of end times here when Christ returns, but still the principle applies is, is that I want you to see is, is this principle of what a steward is to become. And it is a good thing to be stewarded with something. It is a good thing to do as the master has said. The question is, is will we be found faithful and sensible? Christ says, blessed is the slave. The steward is a slave who is found doing what the master has commanded. You see, what the elder needs to know about himself is that not he, he's not just a, that he is just a steward, a manager of someone else's household, not his, but God's. And that steward, he's going to give an account. That's what Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 tells us. So the, the, the elder, the steward, the overseer must be a steward, one who oversees God's flock. And not only is he to oversee the flock, but he is to distribute things. Again, we're looking at this stewardship, this what does it entail? First Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 through 2. First Corinthians 4. 1 through 2, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He's talking about us, these, these, these ministers. In this case, moreover, it is required of that steward to be found trustworthy. Uh, the, the us, again, that Paul's referring to is his fellow members and they are to dispense God's mysteries, his goods. So what are the mysteries of God? What is that? We've already talked about that. That is the gospel. They are to dispense the truths of the gospel. That is their job. John MacArthur says this, What am I to do? As the pastor, what is it that I'm to do? He says, I simply say God has called me to take His Word and to pass it out to His people, to dispense it to people. I'm a waiter. He, 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 or, uh, uh, he gives me the food and I, I get it out of His kitchen and I deliver it to the table. And that's so key for the steward of God is to be, is to feed God's people with God's word. That's it. We're to get out of the way and steward what God has given us. We, we must quit doing your thing. Thing. T-H-A-N-G. It's a word. Quit adulterating the word, but quit, but uh, quit handling it deceitfully. Quit twisting it. Give it to the people as God has intended to give it to them upon a platter. Here's the word of God. Shepherd them as God has intended. When you withhold God's word, you malnourish God's people. I think about John. If John and them, as they have sheep, they, they, if they were, if they did not nourish those sheep as they should, those, those sheep would be malnourished. They know exactly what those sheep need. Just a, the right amount of hay, the right amount of uh, feed, proteins, whatever it is, you know, that you're having to do. And if you were to tell me, if I was to go over to John's house and say, and they were to go out, this has happened before, by the way, and I failed miserably. As they call me to go over there and feed their sheep, what am I to do? Am I just going to throw a big bunch of hay over there? What, what happens when you give them too much of one thing? 
They get sick, don't they? I'm assuming they get sick. If it's like a cow, if you give them too much of one thing, you must give them certain prescriptions of things that they so they don't get sick. Same thing with God's Word. Same thing with God's people so that we not malnourish them. We don't want to malnourish them with just junk, sugar. We want to give them the meat of God's Word. So that's God's steward. So in order for the elder to be above reproach, he must be someone who's, first of all, does as God says. Can you take these orders... And do as I say, or are you one who wants to do what you want to do? So that leads us into our first vice. And he's going to list five vices here. And they really, I think they go hand in hand here, this first vice, you know, with this person who wants to do as he will. This first one, or our third point was, he is not to be self-willed. The elder is not to be self-willed. If the elder won't do what God says and is not to be found faithful, then he must be one who is self-willed. He'll do as he pleases to do, not as God has pleased him to do. Paul says the elder must not be self-willed. This term self-willed in the Greek means to be self-pleasing, to be arrogant, to think my way is the only way. And at its core, it's fundamental selfishness that exhibits an arrogance and uh, even a stubbornness about himself that is unwilling to submit to any type of authority upon over him even to God. Again, this is the opposite of what a steward of God is to be. This man is one who does as he pleases, not as God has commanded. This is a man who is stubborn, headstrong, and unwilling to bend. And I don't mean, I don't mean uh, on his convictions. That's not what I mean. That's not what Paul is saying here is, is that a man who holds to his convictions that are based upon Scripture, that's not what he's talking about, self-willed man. This is a man who looks at Scripture and says, I'm going to do it better than what Scripture says because I, I, I know better than what God does. The only time that we see this, this word elsewhere is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, where Peter's describing false teachers. He says this, And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires, and they despise authority, daring, self-willed, there's our term, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. These false teachers, they're, they're so arrogant that they dare to walk where the angels even fear to walk. They have no fear for their authority. In fact, they despise it. They're arrogant. Their ego is so puffed up that it clouds their wisdom and their leadership skills. You say, well, well, duh. That makes sense. Of course, we don't want man like that. Of course, we can't have that. But, but unfortunately, our churches are filled with men like that. Why? Because they're crafty. They're, 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 they're good talkers. They're slick. And, and they know how to, they know how to handle themselves around a myriad of people. They, they, and that, that they really, if we aren't careful, this is the people that the world tends to gravitate to because we look at that person as someone who is, that person must be able to lead because that's the world, that's what the world calls them to do. Is we want someone who is a go-getter and someone who takes his own initiative and, and that is a self-willed, charismatic, business acumen, financial muscle, political prowess type within our, within our, within our uh, organizations out in the world. It's hard to get anywhere within the ranks of secular job if you don't have a strong go-getter leadership attitude about you. And people seek this type of person for their leadership a lot of times. That's what we've been told, that that's the leader we must have. Those characteristics that are sought out in the secular world really don't transition into the kingdom of God, though. 
The self-willed person is the one who wants things his way. He must be in charge. There's no sense of humility. There's an arrogance, a self-gratification about his desire. His desire is his own outcome and no concern for God's will or truth. Therefore, we could say that the opposite is true, that the elder must not be self-willed, but he must be gentle. He must be kind. He must be gracious, seeking to know the mind and the will of God and to see that what his will is, to see that it is done. The elder is called to be a selfless shepherd of the flock, feeding people the truth, protecting them from the wolves that are, that are fiercely wanting to attack them and eat them, watching over the souls of the sheep and, 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 and selfishly devoting his life to their spiritual welfare as one who will ultimately give an account for his ministry. The shepherd, therefore, exercises his authority with humility, ever seeking the welfare of the people and submitting to the authority of God's word, recognizing that he is an only under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. Not only is he not to be self-willed, but the, the second vice is that he's not to be quick-tempered. Paul says that he's not to be quick-tempered. Not only the, we, this quick-tempered means to be prone to anger. Quick to anger. In fact, the related word of the Greek used here, or the cognate of the Greek word, is, 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 uh, is orge, meaning, meaning a heated passion, wrath, anger. This person is characterized by an explosive lack of control, this doesn't mean just someone who's gotten angry here and there, for we've all done that. We've all gotten a little upset, especially things that we might be passionate about. And that's a sin if we're not righteously angry. But he's not talking about times that we've gotten angry here and there and stuff like that. He's talking about someone who is characterized. Remember, remember, we're filtering this through above reproach. This is his character. This is when you think about that person, you think about this person is an angry person. This person is prone to, to, to lashing out. Quick-tempered attitude. It's someone whose tendency is to re react to situations in which there is a disagreement within the parties with anger and malice rather than resorting to more godly ways of handling the situation or communicating. Their character is one that exhibits an explosive lack of control. That man is unfit for church leadership, a, a, a worldly wisdom, a buddy of mine. His number one, he says, I got two rules. The first rule is, is, is don't get excited. For when you get excited, you make mistakes. And I like that. It's, we could probably say it's a biblical, but I like that, you know, is don't get excited. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23 through 26, 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26, that the servant of the Lord is to refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. He says, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, not lashing out. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come there, and they may come their senses, to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by the will to do his will, or by his will. So we see Paul saying that the servant must not be quarrelsome or combatant. But look at what he says. We, we could say this is the opposite of quick-tempered. He, he is to be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. And here's one that really hit me in the forehead this week was James chapter 1, verse 20. James 1, 20. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That one hurts. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, if we want to achieve to be righteous, let's not get angry. Keep our tempers, right? It's difficult. Very difficult. So the man of God is one who's not quick-tempered, but he is someone who can set aside his prerogatives, his wills, his selfishness, and his ego, can listen to another dissenting party, 
and even can disagree. It's okay if we disagree, but it doesn't fall off the handle. He doesn't just go crazy land. He, doesn't, he won't have a heated anger towards that other person, but he'll have compassion and he'll handle that person with kindness and gentleness and respect and even correct those in opposition. But yet that correctness comes with kid gloves. Not only is he supposed to be not to be quick tempered or self-willed and quick tempered, but he's not to be addicted to wine. He's not to be addicted to wine. In the Greek, pyronos is the word. It's a compound word. Oinos is the word for wine. Para means to come alongside. You've heard, heard of a parachurch ministry. It is someone who comes along somebody's or other ministries. It is something that is alongside. So you put these two together, it literally means not to be alongside wine, not to come alongside wine. Paul, he uses the same term, this oinos in Titus chapter 2 about older women who are not to be enslaved to much wine. And in 1 Timothy, Paul says deacons are not to be addicted to wine. Paul also says the elder must be temperate. When you look at the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says the elder is to be, is to be temperate. Now that temperate word, that, that came to mean that, 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 uh, that, um, to abstain from wine. That's kind of what that originally meant is to abstain from wine or either entirely, at least from its immoderate use. Later on, this term, it, it came to mean within the Greek culture being sober, being clear minded. Self-controlled, this temperate. So the, the servant must not be addicted to wine or the steward must not be addicted to wine. He must be temperate as well. Self-control. We kind of put these two things together. Whatever the case is, is that this elder is to be one who is, is able to make clear judgments at all times in his life, in his ministry. At all times, he must be able to make a clear judgment. Now, I, I want to explain here because this is kind of sometimes we, we had some really good discussions this past week of what this meant and what this didn't mean uh, within within our men's group. And I want to explain to you really quickly what I, I don't think that this text is actually saying here. First of all, it doesn't mean that the elder must be a teetotaler. A teetotaler, meaning what? That you cannot have a drink of alcohol. And when we say wine, we, we, we can really bring it into the modern concept of any type of alcohol. That's what they had back in the day was wine, was, was, was really anything, any really fruit drink that was fermented fruit drink was this wine. And so a lot of times it was used to, to, for, from a, from a cleanliness state because the water was not very good. So it needed to be mixed with wine so that it was, what it was, uh, 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 uh disinfected. But I want you to understand that this wine means could be a, any type of alcoholic drink. It doesn't mean that. That's not what Paul is saying here is that the elder cannot drink. And so why do we say that? Well, it's because other scripture is clear is, is that, that we see within the pages of scripture, Psalm 104, verse 15 and 16, where the psalmist actually celebrates God's gift in creation. John brought this up the other day, including bread, oil, and wine to gladden the heart of man. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 10 mentions vats bursting with wine as a blessing. Not as a curse, a promise to those who God honors, not an, not evil. It's not an evil. We, we see Jesus' first miracle is that he turned water into great wine. It was the best wine at the wedding. Pretty sure if it was a sin to drink that, I'm pretty sure he would not have changed that into a wine. I don't believe they would have done that to cause that temptation there. Paul even instructs Timothy, we know this verses, to drink a little wine for the ailment of your stomach. 
Timothy had most likely taken a Nazarene vow to not drink wine, so he abstained from it. That's why Paul must have probably told him, hey, it's okay, take this because your stomach is ailing. There was some type of uh, medicinal purposes with that wine. So we see that we can't sit here and say is that the elder is not to drink. He is not to abstain from any drink. Is it a good practice? I would say absolutely. But we can't hear, sit here and make that case. However, we do need to understand that while the Bible does not outright restrict drinking or, or an alcoholic beverage, it does say a lot about intoxication as well as the dangers of it. The Bible is very clear at warning us of the dangers of drunkenness. In fact, the Bible is clear that drunkenness is a sin and it is condemned by the Bible. We see excess drinking being associated with violent anger. And it is in our passage today with rebellion, sexual immorality, and even division. It happens. We know that. The Proverbs, they're replete with linking excess drinking to folly and even poverty. The prophet Isaiah gives warning to those who are drunkards. He says this, he says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. That's what, that's what he says in Isaiah chapter 5. So there are cautions associated with the drinking of alcohol. And rightfully so, for many of us, we can probably all go through and give testimony to the fact of what alcohol does to the body as well as to family, the abuse of alcohol, right? The abuse of alcohol, what it does to families and, 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 and to the body as well. I've seen it. I've seen it waste away men, young men. I've buried a many of men that have been given over to the addiction of alcohol. So there are cautions associated with it. We see that it's not prohibited, but we also see the immense caution that one must take. For as the concentrated alcohol is today, it doesn't take much to get across that line. You must be very careful. Get back into the text. He says the elder is not to be addicted, your scripture may say that, or to come alongside wine or alcoholic drink. MacArthur, I think, says it best here. He says, I believe the intent, quote, the intent of the concept here is a person who has some kind of addiction to this or some kind of need to indulge himself in this to some degree of incapacitation, meaning he's not just drinking the mixed wine, think about ancient times, for the sake of just quenching his thirst. He, he's doing it in one degree or another to somehow make himself feel abnormal to his typical senses, so the spiritual leader, the elder, the overseer is not to be coming alongside wine and heavy drink. Again, think about this. We're filtering it through that above reproach um, uh, category there, that above reproach umbrella. Is he above reproach in this area? Can we look at this guy and can we categorize him and says, you know, um, is this one who loves wine? Is this someone who comes alongside of it? And this is how I would characterize this person as someone who does it quite frequently that he, that he's hanging around, um, the bars, that he's hanging around pubs, that on, he's getting drunk on the weekends and weeknights, losing the control of his inhibitions. He says that man is not fit for service to the church. Why? Because first of all, he must not be quick-tempered and pugnacious. We know that 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 the alcoholism and, and, and really drunkenness gives over to those things. I think that's why it's placed right in the middle of pugnacious and quick-tempered, right? They, they kind of go together. Not to mention sexual immorality and rebellion. 
Also, the elder must be clear-headed at all times. He must be sober-minded and self-controlled in order to make judgments, discernments with the flock of God. He's an ambassador to God. He represents the king and he is to steward the flock. The steward can't be found addicted to wine or anything else that might cloud the senses and cause him to and others to stumble. So can the elder drink? Yes, but it comes with a precaution. Not only from a self-controlled standpoint, but I think that it's one that one that's even more pressing than any of those that we've mentioned is that it could cause a brother to stumble. That's important. A pastor has the freedom to drink a drink. There's freedom in Christ to do that. But by using and exercising that freedom, does he cause damage to the flock and the unbelievers? Does he cause damage? Paul in Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians says that we aren't to cause another believer to stumble. Paul is adamant about not flaunting our freedoms in Christ and causing brothers with weaker consciences to stumble. That's sin. Could it be that a pastor who partakes in a drink or two says, say out in public in an area where it is, it was taboo to drink within the South, you could say that, and another brother sees him doing this and it causes this brother to stumble into some type of sin, whether it says, well, he's doing over here, I can do it as well, and it brings about some addiction that he has kicked back in the past and this brother gets back on the train. What happens? We cause that brother to stumble. So we must be very careful must be very careful. We certainly don't want ever to put another brother or sister in that situation. Paul says, if I eat meat and make it, it makes my brother offend, I don't want, I won't eat the meat. I'll give that freedom up. I don't want to cling so tightly to my freedom that, that I'm going to cause others to sin. You could say the same thing with drink. He says in, in chapter 21 of uh, verse 21 of Romans 14, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. It's a good thing. So the pastor has to exercise caution. He has to be responsible. A pastor who is irresponsible with either drinking too much and relying upon that drink or causes a brother to stumble with a drink is not fit for spiritual leadership. Matthew Henry writes that the church leader must have power over his appetite and affections. I thought, man, that summarizes it so well. But think about it. That really goes for anything that we do, is it not? It goes beyond just that. It goes beyond the elder, the Christian even. It should be living in a way that glorifies God with everything that we do. Whether we eat or drink, we glorify God. Everything that we do, uh, working or should be done for His glory. Not in a, we don't do it in a sinful way or cause others to stumble, but we do it in a way that glorifies the master and the king. In a way that is pure, simple, and disciplined devotion unto God. We are all called to live self-controlled lives as evidenced by being this, being one of the fruits of the Spirit. Lastly, our final point is that he's not to be pugnacious. Or that's our second to last point, not to be pugnacious. Not only is this man to be self-willed, quick-tempered, addicted to wine, but he's not to be pugnacious. It's not a word that we use a lot in our language today. You're like, what does that mean? Really, it means a bully. Literally, it means someone who is a striker, someone who delivers a bow, a, a, a blow, Paul, he lists this characteristic in his qualifications in 1 Timothy, and he ties it with that characteristic of addicted to wine. Typically, that's what happens. When you're addicted to wine, you become pugnacious. So they're, they're closely together. But it doesn't just mean a blow to the head. It also could be in cruel speech, cruel words instead of hard fists, dealt a crushing blow to the op- opponent. 
Therefore, the overseer is not to be quarrelsome, but as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he's to be at peace with all men. The overseer must not be one who's ready to fight, ready to come to blows. The man should be characterized by his willingness to, shouldn't be characterized by his willingness to fight or his abusive behavior, whether it be a church member or his family members. That man is not fit to serve the church. The man of God is called to be at peace with all men. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, never taking your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Paul says in the midst of controversy in 2 Corinthians eleven nineteen, don't provoke them, but for you being so wise, bear with the foolish gladly. Bear with the foolish people, Paul says. Don't go punching them back, those who act foolishly and try and drag you into their games. 2 Timothy 2, 24 again, the Lord's bondservant is not to be quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach, patient and gentle. And number seven, our final point, he's not to be fond of sordid gain. That sordid gain, that's a weird term. It really means that he's not to be a lover of money. He doesn't do things for the sake of money. He doesn't manipulate the word of God. He doesn't manipulate the church. He doesn't, he doesn't do pragmatic things because he loves money. He's not fond of sordid gain. It means to be shamelessly greedy. Paul echoes it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the same thing. He must be free from the love of money. He, th this must not be his motivation. He's not getting into ministry because that's what he wants to make. If you want to make money, you need to get out of ministry, right? You don't need to be a pastor. But isn't this what we see? On, I think this is what we see on the island of Crete as well with the false teachers. Is, is Just a few verses down, he says this in verse 10, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the what? Here's why they're doing it, for the sake of sordid gain. They're doing it for their own sake because they want to have money or some type of fame and fortune. Judas, he was, he was obviously found guilty of this. He chose wealth over righteousness. For over 30 shekels he crucified or he, he, he deceived the, the man of God, the son of God. He deceived him. And there's nothing really different to today that we see in TV evangelism. Really today, we see a lot of pastors who, that's what they do. They manipulate the Word of God. If you watch any, most evangelists on TV, you see that. They are sort of, they are millionaires, multi-millionaires flying around in jets. Because why? They have manipulated the Word of God. They have manipulated emotions so that they can get all this money. They've manipulated Scripture and twisted it so that the money flows into them. That is sordid gain. And that man is not qualified to lead God's flock. Proverbs 21.6, The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is vanity tossed to and fro of them that seek death. Ezekiel 22.13, This is to Israel. Behold then, I smite my hand at your dishonest gain which you have acquired and at the bloodshed which is among you. The Lord brings judgment upon Israel because for their dishonest gain. The pastor has no place for that. The shepherd has no place for this. So the elder, he must be above reproach. He must be a husband of one wife, having children who are faithful, a steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not pugnacious, exercising self-control, not a lover of money. If he can't meet those qualifications, he has no business shepherding the flock of God. It's a high standard because the preciousness of God, His church, is unfathomable.
He purchased it with his blood. It's so precious in the sight of God. The elder is to be an example. He is to be someone that can be imitated. He is to imitate Christ and therefore we imitate him. That, that's leadership. When a man is fully discipled, he will be like his teacher. The question for you today is, is do you have a good teacher? Do you have a good discipler? Do you have a good leader that you follow? Do you see this in leadership? Do you see it in elders? Do you hold your elders to their accountability to the standard? The standard is high because God wants His flock to be holy, even as He is holy. So these qualifications, they're not just for the elder. Again, they're for the flock. It's something that we all should try to emulate. I think that's our desire this morning, that we be a holy people.